Let's pray together. Lord God, we are so thankful that we are assembled here, able to have the word of God opened and proclaimed. And Lord, when we exit this place, no one will arrest us. Lord, we thank you, Father, that we can go to our workplaces, we can live in our neighborhoods. Lord, we can have friendships and we can model Jesus Christ and we can even share the gospel of Jesus Christ with others and no one will arrest us. We thank you, Father. That is such a gift. But Father, above all that, we praise you for the fact that in Jesus Christ, we have a freedom that this world knows nothing of. And that, Lord, you have given us a message to share with this world that if they were to receive it, they too would enjoy this freedom. So help us now as we open up this text, Father, to consider what we have in Christ, who we are in Christ, and what our objective is in Christ. Let me pray this in his name. Amen. No taxation without representation. This was their passionate cry. It conveyed the firm belief of many American colonists that Great Britain and its king should not be taxing them while also refusing them a voice and a vote in Parliament. And this cry, along with numerous other grievances, led those colonists to throw the British tea into Boston Harbor, to commence revolution against the British army at Lexington and Concord, and to declare political independence from Great Britain on this very day 245 years ago. And the rest is history, as they say, as America has both enjoyed and struggled with freedom ever since. And like many here today, I grew up in America, and I am thankful for the free citizenship which we enjoy in this land. Our church, think about it, is meeting here in our own building, just a few blocks from our city center, and we do so without fear of suppression. Let us thank God for this, because many believers do not enjoy such freedom today. But as good as this is, being a part of Jesus' people far surpasses being a part of the American people, or any nationality for that matter. In fact, all political freedoms pale in comparison to the unique freedom enjoyed by the sons and daughters of the world's one true king. And on this July 4th, God has providentially arranged today our passage to be about the freedom of his children and taxes. So let us see three truths about the people of Jesus from this passage. Number one, Jesus' people are free children of the king. Number two, Jesus' people should be unoffensive for their king. And number three, Jesus' people should trust the provision of their king. Number one, Jesus' people are free children of their king. Look with me at verses 24 through 26. While they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. 
And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, From others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. There was a tax to be paid. Jesus and his disciples returned to their ministry hub at Capernaum in Galilee, and Peter was encountered by the collectors. And we don't know why they preached Peter alone. But these collectors would have been most likely Jewish citizens who were tasked with the duty of collecting a special yearly tax from the people called the two drachma tax. Now the two drachma tax was a yearly poll tax, which means placed upon every citizen, every member of the citizenship. It was a yearly poll tax required of every Jewish man, every Jewish citizen who was between the ages of 20 years old and 50 years old. And the money that was collected through this tax was actually used to pay for the upkeep of the temple in Jerusalem. So this was not a Roman tax here used for the rule of Caesar in Rome. We're going to talk about that kind of tax when we get to chapter 22, when Jesus is going to say, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Rather, this two drachma tax here was for Jewish worship. And it was actually instituted under the law of Moses, back in the book of Exodus, chapter 30, verse 15, which says, Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this. Half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary or temple. Half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. So they were to give money on a yearly basis to help fund the ministry of the temple. Now the two drachma tax in verse 24 was a singular coin worth about half a Jewish shekel. Or roughly two days wages for a common laborer. So the amount wasn't nothing, but it wasn't overly burdensome either. In our dollars, you might think of maybe a couple hundred bucks. Well, the collectors, they went up to Peter and they asked him, does your teacher not pay the tax? And, and we're, sure, we're not sure why they came and they asked Peter this question, though perhaps this was yet another effort to try to trip Jesus and his disciples up. But, but Peter's response here is both swift and assertive in verse 25. He says, yes. Well, yes, of course my, my teacher pays the two drachma tax. In Peter's mind, he's probably thinking, well, of course the Messiah of the Jews is going to pay the directed tax under the law of Moses. That's kind of a no-brainer. Of course Jesus is going to pay this. But Jesus here, he uses this tax to teach Peter yet another vital lesson. So when Peter came into the house where Jesus was, and this was perhaps Peter's very own home, Jesus spoke to him before Peter could even say a word. Verse 25, Jesus spoke to him first, and he said, What do you think, Simon? Now that question, what do you think, it was a common teaching device employed by Jesus throughout the Gospel of Matthew. For example, in chapter 18, Jesus is going to say in verse 12, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? 
So he often begins his teaching times by saying, what do you think? He begins with a question. So the teacher here in chapter 17 is doing some teaching. And what Jesus is doing here is using a real-life situation to teach Peter an important lesson about life. And Jesus asked Peter a thought-provoking question. From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? Or, Peter, you've grown up hearing about kings and even seeing the rule of kings firsthand. So tell me, Peter, do kings generally tax their own sons, their own children, or do kings actually usually tax others, those outside of their families? Jesus, who evidently knew supernaturally of the conversation Peter had just had with the tax collectors, asks him this question, which has a pretty obvious answer. As Peter says in verse 26, from others. Kings don't tax their kids. That's laughable. No, kings tax just about everybody else. They tax their property, they tax their sale on goods and services, they tax in a lot of ways, but they don't tax their own. No, the sons are free. And this is Jesus' point. The sons are free. Now, we have to read this passage in the context that Matthew, the writer, has provided. Matthew the only gospel writer to include this narrative that we're considering today, who, by the way, was himself previously a tax collector, Matthew, he places this narrative just a few verses away from another mention of that word, son. Look back with the very, at the very beginning of chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. It says, verse 1, After six days Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when behold... A bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So, Peter, James, and John had heard the Father God's voice from heaven, which we saw a couple of weeks ago, and that voice said some incredible words about Jesus. That Jesus is the Father's beloved Son, with whom the Father is well pleased, and to whom the disciples were to listen. And now, in verses 24 through 27, Jesus has divinely set up this conversation here. And this conversation ends with Jesus saying that the sons are free. Meaning that the kings of the earth don't tax their sons, and the king of heaven does not tax his son either. In other words, Jesus as the son of God has no obligation to pay this tax for the temple in Jerusalem, which was built for his own praise. 
So when those collectors asked Peter in verse 25, does your teacher pay the tax? The most perfect answer that Peter could have given them would have been, well, why would he? He is the son of God. Is he to be taxed to help pay for his own worship? That's the right answer. But Jesus also hints, I think, at something else in verse 26 when he states, then the sons are free. That it isn't just Jesus, the son of God, who is free from the bondage of this broken world and its fallen kingdoms. Because his people are also free, as they are also sons and daughters of God. If you remember back to the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, it tells us that his people are free. In fact, it says in chapter 5, verse 8 and 9, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. His people who are pure in heart, his people who put the kingdom first, his people who are peacemakers in an unjust world, they will see God and they will be the sons of God. Or as the Apostle Paul would later state in Galatians 3 verse 26, in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. If you're in Christ, if you placed your faith in him, if you're, if, if you're in him, if he's your savior, if he's your Lord, then you're a son, you're a daughter of God. Or as the Apostle John relates in the Gospel of John chapter 1, but to all who did receive him, verse 12, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. If you have received Jesus as Savior and Lord, then you are one of the children of God. Or as Peter himself would later relate when he called Christians in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, obedient children of God. My friends, the sons of the king are free indeed. But how are they free? How are they free? Jesus doesn't get to that. He only kind of opens the door a little bit. And this door is going to be opened much wider as scripture goes on. But the sons are free. But how are they free? Well, real quick, three ways at least that they're free. Number one, through the gospel of Jesus, God's son, believers are free from sin's condemnation. Romans chapter one, excuse me, Romans chapter eight, verses one and two. There is therefore... Now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. If you are in Christ, if you have placed your faith in Jesus alone, then the condemnation that you are deserving for your sin has been removed. All of the ways that you broke the law of God, all the consequences of the law that should be upon you, that you deserve, they are removed and you are set free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So if you have Christ, God's wrath that you should get, you're free from it because Jesus has already paid for it. And secondly, through the gospel of Jesus... 
God's son, believers are free from sin's enslavement. Now, we just sang the song, Rock of Ages. We just sang that. Be of sin the double cure, free from wrath and make me pure. Christ frees us in two ways. He frees us from the wrath of God, like I just said in Romans 8, but he also makes us pure. Through the gospel of Jesus, God's son, believers are free from sin's enslavement. Romans 6, verses 6 and 7. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. In other words, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, then your old life has been crucified with Jesus who went to the cross for you. And you have been raised with Jesus in his resurrection so that now you are no longer a slave to your old sinful inclinations, but now you have been set free to live in purity for God. He doesn't just cancel the debt that condemns you. He also removes the enslaver from your life that keeps you from the purity you were called to live out. Oh, what freedom. And then third, through the gospel of Jesus, God's son, believers are free as privileged sons and daughters of God himself. Galatians 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those, which means to free those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So not only does God, through Jesus, remove the condemnation that we deserve, and not only does God, through Jesus, remove the enslaver who once made us bow to sinful desires, but God also welcomes us into his family, having freed us from sin. And he says, my son and my daughter, we're a part of his family now. So if you want a reason to set off fireworks tonight, you got some good ones, but none of them beat that. So if you know Jesus as Lord and Savior, then recognize and relish your freedom as a son or a daughter of the King, the greatest privilege which could ever be enjoyed. And live as free people who live every moment of every day in union with the Son, Jesus Christ, looking to him depending upon him, enjoying him, trusting him as you go through this hard life because in him, my friends, you are free. But this leads to our second truth this morning, that Jesus' people should be unoffensive for their king. Look at verse 27. However, see the contrast? He goes a different direction now. However, Jesus says, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Jesus is concerned about giving offense. Now remember, he's the son. He is free. 
The collectors have no claim on Jesus. He owes nothing under God's law because he is the son of God himself. And he has every right to be worshipped by every person around him. In fact, he's the only one who has such a right. The most perfect right of all the rights you could think of is upon Jesus. He has the absolute right as the Son of God. And yet, in his profound humility, he is concerned here more about not giving unnecessary offense. He wants no one to stumble over this small point about earthly taxes because he wants them to consider the bigger issue of who he is and what he's about to do. Now, this does not mean that Jesus was wholly unoffensive or unwilling to be offensive because we've already seen that he most certainly was willing to offend if the matter affected gospel truth. Just a couple of chapters ago in Matthew 15, verse 10, Jesus called the people to him and he said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, so not what you eat, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. What comes from the human heart, that's what makes us defile, Jesus says. Well, then the disciples in verse 12, they came up to him and said, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? So Jesus, when he's talking about the depravity of the human heart, he is willing to offend people because we have to be offended. Our own pride has to be assaulted if we are ever to understand our fallen condition before a holy God that we might believe upon his one and holy son and be saved. But when it comes to the relatively small matter of whether or not to pay a human poll tax, Jesus takes care not to offend. He says in verse 27, however, not to give an offense to them. Jesus relates here the correct posture his people should take towards earthly authority. If the controversy is a gospel matter, one that affects the truth about God and his saving message, then God's people must be willing to offend. Listen to what Peter would later say to the Jewish rulers when he was arrested for healing a man and preaching the gospel. Acts chapter 4, verse 10, it says, Peter speaking, let it be known to all of you, speaking to the leadership of the Jewish community, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And then he says, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He says to the Jewish rulers, you did this. And your only hope is to be saved in the name of Jesus. Now that kind of preaching was and always will be offensive. And listen to how Peter and John responded when those same leaders commanded them to stop preaching about Jesus. 
In Acts chapter 4, verse 18, the leaders called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. In other words, Peter and the rest of the disciples would not stop preaching Christ, even though it was terribly offensive. However, in those areas where it is not a gospel matter, it is for God's people to submit to their earthly authorities and not offend. Now, we can take a sidebar here and we can talk about times when we should step up and speak about human justice and protecting the weak. I think there's a lot of things that can be said about this. But generally, when we're just talking about our own rights in those areas where it is not a gospel matter, it is for God's people to submit to their earthly authorities and not offend. Paul Romans 13, verse 1 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And then he says in verse 7 of that same passage, Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Paul says, God's put the governing authorities over you, and when they tell you to pay a tax, pay it. And because they're over you, you should honor them. And as he tells, Peter, tells Timothy later on, you should pray for them. In fact, Peter, Peter himself, the one whom Jesus is addressing here, he would say these words in 1 Peter 2, verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme, and there were some awful emperors, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Do you want to know how to live for the sake of the Lord? Do you want to know how to accomplish the will of God in the United States of America when our political system is so warped and messed up? Well, it's quite simple, really. Obey, be subject to your governing authorities. Give them no reason to ever be offended by you. Instead, put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Be such good, law-abiding, patient, kind citizens that the government will never have a reason to say those people are rebellious. That's what Paul, that's what Peter says, and that's what Jesus is getting to, I think, here in verse 27. Jesus, I think, is hinting at something enormous here. Something enormous that is not talked about enough in the church today. That God's free people, yes, his free people, God's free people must surrender themselves for the sake of enslaved people. God's free people must surrender themselves for the sake of of enslaved people. I want you to keep your hand here in Matthew 17, but I want you to flip forward with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It's page 
900, if you're using one of the pew Bibles in the pew in front of you, page 900, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, or page 900 in the pew Bible. And look with me at 1 Peter 9, verses 19 through 23, what the Apostle Paul says. He says in chapter 9, verse 19, For though I am free from all, stop right there. Paul is one of the sons who is free. He says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. If they're Jews who are living under the law of Moses with all of its harsh constraints, Paul says, I will put myself underneath those harsh constraints again out of love for them that they might give me an audience to share the gospel. If they are Gentiles and they reject the Jews, they reject the law of God, though I've always been under the law of God and the people of Israel are all whom I've ever known, I'm going to act like the Gentiles. I'm going to go where they go. I'm going to be with them. I'm going to surrender any rights that I might have that I might win the Gentiles. If they're weak, if they hurt, if they're poor, if they're foolish, if they're without understanding... I'm going to go and be where they are, and I'm going to minister to them because I want to win them for Christ. This is Paul's mindset. And he isn't just telling us this so that we can say, wow, what a guy. He's telling us this so that as chapter 11, verse 1 says, look there, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. The word imitate is to mimic. Paul says... You are to do as I do, and what I do is I surrender myself, I make myself enslaved for other people, even though I am as free as can be in Jesus Christ. That is so contradictory to much that is shared today here in this land from pulpits. That is a message that says, I will surrender myself, my rights, all that I have, if it means advancing the gospel message of Jesus and seeing his kingdom spread across this place. We must live gospel-centered, sacrificial lives before others in this world. If our neighbors are Republicans, who love freedom and they prize small government, then we must share with them the freedom from sin that is found in Christ and the gentle and lowly heart of the one and only true king. If our neighbors are Democrats who want an earthly government big enough to help people in need, 
then we must share with them the Savior who cares more about needy, undeserving people than they could ever imagine. And if our friends think that Christians are just a bunch of hypocrites who love money, who keep to themselves, and who make everyone else feel bad, then we must quickly admit our failings, point them to the only perfect Savior, and then in the Spirit's strength, model lives of humble authenticity, joyful selflessness, and gentle communication of the only truth that can save them. If they're weak, we become weak. My brothers and sisters in Christ, we must be willing to go to any length, endure any discomfort, and forsake any right in order to save the people around us. We are Jesus' people first. And this is what it means to take up the cross and to follow Jesus. The son was free, and yet he put himself under obligation to save others. And the sons and daughters of God are also free, but they too must put themselves under obligation to save others. The simple goodness of our political freedom is that we are free from other people. And the far greater goodness of our spiritual freedom is that we lay it down for other people. My friends, our lives in this world must be marked by one very important word, yieldedness. We must be willing to surrender ourselves, to yield up ourselves for the sake of other people because this is God's means of winning people for Christ. But how can we do this? That sounds really hard. It even sounds quite expensive. And this leads to our third truth. Jesus' people must trust the provision of their king. Once again, verse 27. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Consider all that Jesus knew and had providentially arranged beforehand here. In verse 25, it says that Jesus spoke to Peter first. Now, we cannot say for sure, but this seems to suggest that Jesus had a supernatural knowledge of the conversation that Peter had just had with the collectors up in verse 24. In fact, it kind of seems like that whole discourse occurred just so that Jesus could ask that all-important question of Peter in verse 25. Peter enters the house, and before he could even say anything, Jesus gets right to his point. Now, when we see things like this, we should ask, why? Why does Matthew, the writer, a former tax collector who had himself likely defrauded people, and made people fearful for their own livelihoods and financial well-being, why does Matthew the writer include this important note that Jesus first spoke before Peter could even explain what had happened? 
Well, I think he does this because he wants us, his readers, to know that whether or not our own authorities act righteously, they often don't. Whether or not our own authorities act righteously, Jesus already knows precisely what's going on and exactly how to provide for it. In other words, a believer's financial situation will never be so strapped and we will never face such injustice that Jesus doesn't already know it. We are in his grip. Now carefully notice verse 27 as it relates a masterful picture of God's providence. Providence is God's sovereign provision for and guidance of everything he has created. And it includes his perfect control of all time, all space, and all events to accomplish all his awesome purposes. And verse 27 puts this on display. Think about all that God providentially brought about to make just verse 27 happen. Peter's encounter with the collectors happened at just the precise moment and his conversation with Jesus occurred at the exact second necessary because while this was happening, out in the Sea of Galilee, there was a fish which for some strange reason slurped up a coin into its mouth. And this coin... A shekel, mind you, literally a stater, which was worth, get this, four drachmas, or just enough to pay for both Jesus and Peter's two drachma tax. And this coin was somehow lost in the Sea of Galilee at just the right time and in just the right way for the fish to gobble it up. And Jesus told Peter to cast a hook. Peter didn't cast hooks. Peter cast nets. And if he ever did cast a hook, I'm fairly confident he would use bait. But Jesus told him to cast just a hook into the sea. And when this hook was cast by Peter into the Sea of Galilee at just the right place and at just the right time, what gobbled up the hook? The same fish that had slurped up the coin. Jesus showed Peter how he could provide for him with profound clarity. Think of all that Jesus is revealing to Peter here in these four verses at the end of chapter 17. That Jesus is free from the temple tax because he's the son of God and therefore the Lord of the temple itself. That Jesus is also careful not to offend people for unnecessary reasons and that Jesus has both the knowledge and the providential control for his people's every little need. Taxes? Well, that's no big thing, because Jesus can take care of that with simply a foolish fish and an empty hook. My friends, consider the ramifications of this, of just how Jesus can provide for his people. He does not need you. He does not need anything to bring everything together that he's been preparing before the foundation of the earth to give you exactly what you need right in that moment, right in that place. What a God. Our church right now has some sizable financial needs. 
got a roof issue. <laughs> we got a wiring issue. We got a few other issues going on right now, and they're going to cost. But that is no problem for Jesus. He may make us wait, and he may let us struggle so that we learn to depend upon him alone, but these problems are no problem for our Lord. And believer, you yourself may be concerned about your weakness, your lack of wisdom, your insufficient ability, or your meager means, but these are no problem for the king. The question is, will you trust him? But especially notice here, my friends, that Peter's debt was actually paid for by the king himself. The fish surrendered a shekel, or a stator coin, literally, which was worth four drachmas. And this not only paid Jesus' tax, preventing any unnecessary offense with the collectors, but it also paid Peter's. And whenever I see Jesus paying the debt of another person, I immediately think of a far greater debt that he paid for both Peter and me. Because he said, back in verses 22 and 23, as they were gathering in Galilee, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third in God's providential arrangement, it was destined that his son would come not merely to teach, but to go to a cross and die to pay for Peter's sins and my sins and yours if you will repent and put your faith in Jesus. Oh, what a gift. Oh, what a debt that has been paid. All of the wrongs that I have committed, of which there are so many against my God, he has paid for through his death on the cross. And my friends, you too can know the joy of having such freedom in Christ. So turn from your sins and embrace Jesus in faith today. Jesus provides his free people with precisely what they need as they await him in this world. As Jesus said again back in the Sermon on the Mount in Chapter 6, verse 30. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? He clothes his people. And he says three verses later, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. In other words, you seek the kingdom that I've directed you to. You go and accomplish my kingdom mission. You trust in me as you're going about that mission. And all of those things that you need, I'll take care of that. That's what he says to his disciples, then and now. So three exhortations as we close. Number one, Rejoice if you are a free child of God. You have a freedom that is so unique, that is so wonderful, that this world cannot even imagine it. And yet he's given you that freedom for your own enjoyment, but also for your own proclamation. So rejoice over it, but rejoice by also sharing it with others. And second exhortation let the gospel guide your approach to the authorities and the people of this passing world. Don't live for you. 
Don't be so focused upon your own rights. Instead, live for Christ and be focused upon those who are dead in their transgressions and sins and need to see an example of someone who's willing to lay his or her life down for them that they might know the Savior who laid his life down for them. And then third, trust your providential king to provide. He is capable, he is willing, trust him. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, we rejoice that we have Jesus. There is no greater privilege than to have the king as our king, to have the Lord as our Lord, the Savior as our Savior. And Lord, we enjoy the freedom that we have in him today. We're, thank you, we're thankful, Father, that we do have political freedoms in this land, but we're so much more thankful, Father, that we have the spiritual freedoms found in your Son. Help us to live in light of this today, I pray. And may you be magnified in your people at Riverside. I pray this in Jesus' name.